morning, Fellowship Church. We're going to read today from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Please join me in prayer. Holy Father God, God most high, we are here today gathered seeking your presence, seeking your spirit. Please fill us up. Please unite us as one body, the body of Christ, to do good works in the name of the kingdom of heaven. Father, please reveal to us the things in this scripture that might be obscure or hidden from us. This figure, this Melchizedek, that is compared to the Son of the Most High God. We thank you for Jesus, for his priestly office, for the service he performs on behalf of us who sin to be reconciled to the one and only God. We love you and we thank you. And I, I pray that you would bless Chris as he delivers this message, that his words would be eloquent and true, and that all of us would be equipped to go out into the world with the things you've taught us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, I would say happy spring break, but I don't know if all of us get spring break. Um, I didn't see you guys at the 7.30, I mean 8.30 service this morning. Cause didn't it feel early? Anybody lose that hour of sleep and just feel like you, you missed something? I mean, there's interesting, our Honduras team, I hope you guys are praying for them this week, but they left at 2 a.m., which there isn't really a 2 a.m., so do that math in your head somewhere. Kind of try to figure out how to tell everybody to meet at that time. That's pretty fun to try to figure out. But we're talking today about this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Now, last week we left you with a teaser, right? If you remember in Hebrews, right here at the end of the chapter in verse 19, it said this. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures in the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that was the teaser last week. And so today what we want to do is we want to figure out who is Melchizedek? 
Who is he? He's this mysterious um, character that only has a few verses in Genesis and, and is mentioned in Psalm 110. Who is this person that a whole chapter in the book of Hebrews is dedicated to saying this person was a type of Jesus? And this is where we have these three primary views of who Melchizedek is, right? One, I think that he's a type. Mean that he is someone that is supposed to be like a stencil or a pattern to help us see who the Messiah was going to be. So the Messiah was going to be similar to Melchizedek in these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven ways that we're going to see in there. But there's other people who believe the second one that this was a Christophany. Of Christ, that this was a pre-incarnate um, occurrence of Jesus coming to the earth. So we see this happening at different points in the Old Testament, where where maybe when jo- Joshua comes in to the Promise and he meets the commander of the Lord's army, uh, who are you for? Me or enemies? Neither. I- in I'm the commander of the Lord's army, right? Or maybe when Shadrach and Benny, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace, and a man glowing like a son of the gods is there. Was that? Jesus, or later in Daniel chapter 10, when we see this figure above the river and he's just glowing, his eyes are like fire and and his arms are like burnished bronze, was that Jesus? So was Melchizedek Jesus in human form before he came as a savior of the world? Or was he just a normal man? Well, was Melchizedek just a normal man? Person. In fact, one of the interesting things, if you study this, that some people believe that this that Melchizedek was another name for Shem. Anybody remember who Shem was? Noah's son? And that they think this might have been Shem. Here, here's why. Because did you realize that Shem lived 127 years of Abraham's life? In fact, look at this um, graphic that's up here. Um, it shows you kind of a chronological order of all the different sons being born with Adam way back here, and then Methuselah, who lived you know, a long time, and then the flood, done, okay, at that point. But we notice that Noah actually overlaps Abraham. Did you realize that? That Noah was alive for about 39 years while Abraham was alive. But remember, Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he had to travel, go to the land that I have given to you. It took him 75 years to get there. So Abraham probably didn't meet Noah, but he met his son. Shem lived for 127 years or so. He, Shem didn't die until Sarah, Abraham's wife, ended up passing away. So that means that Shem could have told Abraham about the old world, the world before the flood. In fact, Shem would have met Methuselah, who was alive when Adam was alive. So Abraham could have heard these stories about God's faithfulness and incredible stories about the flood from people that actually were on the boat going through the flood. Was Melchizedek Shem who came to visit him? I don't think so. We don't have a lot of evidence besides that this is really cool that they overlap and they, they connect. And we don't know a lot about Shem and what happened after he settled in the land and things of that nature. Um, but this is an interesting theory. Now, I land in camp one. I believe that Melchizedek is a type of the Christ. And we're going to discuss that. But I'm telling you, number two is going to raise up in you and it's going to make you go, hmm. 
That's pretty interesting, okay? Because Melchizedek's this interesting figure. We really only have three places in Scripture that mention Melchizedek. Genesis 14, back 2000 B.C., the first mention of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 in these few verses that we're going to read in a second. And then David, in Psalm 110, this prophetic messianic psalm mentions Melchizedek. And then we see it in Hebrews chapter 7 where we were before, this sort of mention and, and this expansion of Melchizedek in there. So let's go back. Let's start. So there's so few verses. Let's read them to get kind of the full picture of Melchizedek. We're in Genesis chapter 14. We're going to start here after Lot has been rescued by Abraham. I mean, he's gotten his, you know, brought Lot back, and all of a sudden we meet him. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Hmm? Interesting. Bread and wine? This early? Okay, we'll get to that later. Sorry, I'm getting excited. Okay. He was a priest of God Most High. Now, this God Most High name is a very interesting. It's not used a lot in scriptures. El Elyon, this idea of the Most High God. In fact, it's only used sort of in this spiritual description of God. In fact, spiritual beings are typically the ones that mention it. We see the New Testament in like Mark chapter 5, verse 7, where we meet this guy named Legion. Right? And out of him, the demons speak, what do you have to do with the son of the most high God? Are you going to torment us before our time? So they call him son of the most high God, son of El Elyon. They, they mention this name. Or in Acts 16, verse 17, if you remember, Paul was walking along and this, this girl who is a fortune teller, who had a, had a d demon inside of her, was calling, here is Paul, right, a servant of the most high God who gives you the way of salvation. The demons just kept calling these different servants and people of the God most high, El Elyon, this name being used, and it's very unique that it's being used here by Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God. This is a high, lofty name being given. And it says, and he blessed him. So Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine, meets Abraham, and then he blesses him. He says, um, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then he's gone. He comes in with bread and wine, blesses him. Abraham gives him 10% and out. And we don't hear about him for another thousand years. And a thousand years later, in Psalm 110, we hear about Melchizedek again. And so if we pick up in Psalm 110, by the way, interesting fact about Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament is Psalm 110. In fact, we've heard some of Psalm 110 before. Look at what it says in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we actually heard about that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. You might remember that we were talking about um, the angels, right? And to which of the angels did he say, right? I'll make your enemies your footstool underneath of your feet. And when we're talking about Jesus being greater than the angels, they use this quote. Well, I told Jesus, this is about Jesus. That's not about you. Your enemies are not going to be a footstool underneath you. This is about Christ, right? Or, for example, in Matthew 22, this is an interesting story. Uh, let's go to it. Matthew 22. 
It ta- Jesus uses this quote out of Psalm 110 to shut down the Pharisees. Do you remember those times where the Pharisees would come up to him with a question and be like, hey, so should I pay taxes to Caesar or to the temple? Trying to get him in trouble. And he's like, oh, you got a coin? Let me see who's on it. Oh, whose picture is that? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. Oh, right. If we had like internet back then, it'd been like, oh, burn. All those kind of things, right? So they kept trying to trick him, kept trying to trick him. Well, Jesus ends all of those conversations with this quote. Look what it says here at the end of that section, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, who do you think or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And then David said, or then they, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and here's our quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David called him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Done, right? Done, no. What's the answer to this question? Only one who is 100% man could be a son and 100% God could be eternal and be Lord. Only Jesus. Only the Messiah could fulfill this son of David, but also son of God idea. And Jesus uses this psalm, points him back to the psalm to say, hey, I know you're trying to get to me, but you ain't going to do it. It ain't going to work, right? Let's keep going. So that's just the first verse in here, right? So it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies that Christ is going to come. The second coming of Christ is going to come, and he's going to rule. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That should echo back to last week. There's two unchangeable things, his promises and his oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie. Kind of remember that idea? Here's the same idea. The Lord has sworn, given an oath, and has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this Messiah, this one to come, was going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what does that mean? And then silence for another thousand years until we get to the book of Hebrews. Okay. You're like, that was a long introduction. We're going to be here a long time. Yeah, don't worry. Okay. So we're going to be in verse one of chapter seven, and we see this idea of Melchizedek being brought to the light. So for by this, or for this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, there's our name again, most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And in, in him, or to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And it should kind of have some echoes back to Hebrews chapter 1. Do you remember how we started all of this? How we started this proof that long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. And then we have this like sevenfold description that he's the heir, he upholds things with his right hand, right? He is the son. But then at the end of that, he said the first proof of who Jesus was, that he was better than anything, was his name. 
So we see Melchizedek being a type because his name means kings of righteousness. Now, here's what's going to happen in this next section. We believe that Melchizedek was a type pointing towards Christ, but you're going to start leaning towards number two, that this might have been Jesus himself in the flesh in the person of Melchizedek. This Christophany idea, because look what he says, king of righteousness. Have we heard that name before? Do we think Jesus is a righteous king? Right? 1 John 2, 1 even says that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the description for him. So king of righteousness would be a very apt name for who Jesus is. Look what he says next. And then he is also king of Salem, which is later going to be Jerusalem, right? This idea of Salem, right? That is king of peace. And you're going to be like echoing your mind, screaming at you like, I remember that Christmas verse, unto us a child is born, right? And, he's, and it talks about how he's going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, right? So we have Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. And we have Jesus, the righteous king and the prince of peace. Think, is that the same person? And you start leaning towards that side. And then number three pushes you even further. Look what verse three says. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days. He sounds eternal. So you start leaning towards this. This might be Jesus. But remember, keep reading. Read the context because what it says next in verse 3 But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So we have these things that point towards this incredible, you know, maybe this is Jesus, but then he says resembling. And this word resembling means that it's a copy. It's a pattern. That this idea of resemble is something that's going to point us towards. It's it's like it, but it's different. And in fact, this um, word for resemble is not a word you could use in Scrabble. I'm just going to say, here, here's the Hebrew word for it. It's apiayo. It's like I can't say it because there's too many vowels in it, all right? It's A-P-H-O-M-O-I-O-O. If someone put that on Scrabble, would you count it? Probably not, right? But it's actually the combination. This is the only time that this word is used in all of Scripture. And it's the combination of these two words, right? And these two words, the first word is meaning separate, Separate, but the second one means made like the other. So it's separate, but it's made like. It's similar in comparison. So Melchizedek is separate, but similar to Jesus. And wouldn't we expect that if he was a type of Christ, we were going to highlight all the ways he was like Jesus? So then the question is um, okay, well, why does he say he has no father and mother? Why would the author use that description of Melchizedek if he didn't mean to say that he was eternal? Why would he use that? Well, because think about the priesthood at this time. The priesthood was given by birth. If you remember back to Exodus 28, when we went through the book of Exodus, who was the first priest? It was Aaron, Moses' brother, and he was appointed to be the priest, and then his family, the Levites, were appointed to be the priests forevermore. They, they didn't get a portion of the land like the other 12 tribes. Their job was to work the tabernacle. And they worked the tabernacle. They had to pack it up and move it. They had to set it back up again. The offerings that were brought in, that's how they were surviving uh, as the Levites. And so they were the ones who worked the temple. And that by birth, you became a priest. By birth, you were 
holy. But yet here comes Melchizedek, who's not from the tribe of Levi. In fact, Melchizedek is before there was even a tribe of Levi, remember? He's blessing Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, and then the 12 sons were there. So God had established something before birth became the key to holiness. He established something earlier than that. And that's what we're going to dive into in this next section. All right, look what it says in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And there's something interesting about giving that comes in right here. Why does Abraham give Melchizedek 10% in order to honor him? Right, this idea of us giving to the body of Christ is us giving in honor of how great God is. That's the picture that we see here. Now, he gives them a tenth, which we would call tithing in this scripture, calls tithing as well, right? It's giving 10%. But what I want you to notice about this is what is the heart behind this? What does it mean that for us to have a giving heart? We're giving to honor God. Because you can actually tithe and have a totally wrong attitude about tithing. For example, if you give 10% of your money so that you can keep the other 90%, that's the wrong thought in giving. Because listen, 100% of it is God's. All of it is his. So are we using the resources that we have in order to give and to make the kingdom work happen? For example, when you give to Fellowship Church, that money goes all over the world on missions and a team in Honduras going towards them. It goes all over our community to bless people. It goes to discipling kids and discipling youth. And it goes to discipling you through path groups and developing all these incredible things that you giving, which by the way, you are amazing. Thank you for giving to the, the church of Christ. Thank you for the way that you bless us in that. But we trust the Lord. Who's the provider of our church? God. And we truly believe that. And you're like, yeah, yeah. You believe that because you guys always make budget, which is crazy, by the way. Thank you, guys. All right. But listen, I was at Fellowship Church when we were in a school, Negley Elementary School. Smelled like feet every Sunday, all right? We tried to cover up feet smell. It didn't work, all right? I know. Sorry. You're looking right there. Feet smell. Okay. Um, but listen, I was there when we weren't going to get a paycheck. There were weeks where we're like, we're not going to get a paycheck. Like, oh, well, God's a provider. He'll come through. If he doesn't, Guess I don't need it that week. He'll take care of another bill or he'll take care of another thing or whatever. Guys, crazy things have happened to me because God is so faithful. I've been given cars that I gave to someone else because I didn't need a car. See, we, everything is the Lord. So this is the question. How are you using 100% of your life to honor God? Are you using 100% of your time to honor God? Or you're like, I'll give you Sunday morning. And maybe Tuesday night. Or are we saying, no, every moment, every opportunity, I'm going to make the most of it because the days are evil. Every opportunity I have, I want to be about kingdom work, something bigger than myself. That's what it means to truly give, that we're giving. And it's such a blessing to give and to honor him because he's given us so much. If you don't believe me, go to Honduras with us next year. And you're going to see some of the most giving people on earth, and they have three chickens. That's all, that's all they have to their name, but they're willing to give it 
just because they want to honor other people. So we need to learn how to have that same giving heart. Lord, whatever you want, we're willing to give to you. And we see that heart here in Abraham because right after this, if you keep reading in Genesis 14, he doesn't even keep any of the spoils for himself. He just gives them away because he doesn't want anybody to get confused that he got the spoils. He wants it just to be God, be the one that's blessing him. So he gives 10% to that, and he gives other 90% away because he doesn't want anybody to get confused about who he serves. He serves God alone. It's such an incredible picture that we see here and being highlighted here in verse 4. See how great this man was that Abraham the patriarch gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants, and we'll keep going, we'll dive back into that priesthood idea. And the descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Through these are the descendants of Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blesses him who has the promises. So again, echoes of the promises and the oaths that we talked about last week. I love the Bible how it interconnects all these things together in such a cool way. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. If the one, in the case of the one, ties are received by mortal men, but in the case of, by, in the other case, by one who is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still on the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So here's the idea, that Melchizedek is better than the, the Levites. He's better than the priests of today because Abraham honored him. And he says something interesting up here in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So here's how we know Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because he was the one who blessed him. Now, I know it's still early. Can we do some math? Transitive property, right? So if Melchizedek is better than the Levitical priesthood and Jesus is better than Melchizedek, then he's the greatest high priest. He's the great high priest. So what we're going to do in this next section is prove that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek because Jesus is the point. Melchizedek is pointing to him. The one who's pointing to him is pointing to the one that is greater. Okay? So that's where we're going to go next, a little transitive property. A greater than B, B greater than C, A is greater than C. Flashbacks. All right? Y'all still with me? Okay, all right. So let's go into it. Let's jump into this next part, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Woo, this is so good. All right, so here's what he's saying. You have this system of sacrifice that every year you got to confess your sins, and every year you're reminded of your sin and how God has to be the one to forgive it. We're going to dive into that in the next few weeks. But here's what he's saying. Like, if that is the point, if you could be saved by works, there'd be no need for Jesus. If you could be saved because your good scoreboard was better than your bad scoreboard, why do we need Jesus? We don't, we don't need another priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, before the law came through Moses, Melchizedek came. And he was going to be the type of the one to come to give us victory. We have a better covenant in Christ. Are you relying on works 
Let me give you a simple test. Do you think God loves you more when you do good things? If that's what you think, then you have a works-based mentality. Because God loves you. Even in your worst, in your darkest hour, God loves you. His love is not based upon your actions. Ooh, what if we live that way? Oh, so I'm getting ahead of myself again. We'll keep going. All right. So it goes in verse 12. For when there was a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one with whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priesthood. In other words, how can Jesus be our great high priest? He's not a Levite. Oh, yeah. Melchizedek wasn't a Levite either. And he came in the order of Melchizedek, meaning that before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham had been established, Jesus had established himself. He was pointing ahead to that time. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. Boom! You say you're holy because you were born into a family? Jesus was holy because he had an indestructible life that when they tried to take it from him, he brought it back up again. That when he died on the cross, he didn't stay in the grave, but he was risen indeed. That's the good news of the gospel. If we're going to follow someone, let's follow the one with an indestructible life. What if we lived with an indestructible life? What if our trust and God was so fierce that nothing could shake us. That we could speak truth even when it wasn't popular. That we could stand on the word of God even when everybody else tries to cut the legs out from under it. What if we were able to live an indestructible life? What if we were unoffendable? What if we were able to walk through life and not be offended by people? Then we could speak truth with the proper emotional response. Because don't we get offended so easily? Imagine a place where you could disagree on things and still talk about them in gentleness and respect. Imagine. Can you imagine? Imagine going out into a world that is so easily offended, but yet we stand on the rock. And people can see that in us. What if we were unshakable? The winds of doctrine that come around, the, the winds of the culture that try to take us out. Nope. We're unshakable. What if we were to love people unconditionally? We just love people regardless of how they treat us. Woo, that's hard, isn't it? These things are hard because we, we, we get hurt. But what if we were able to live like Christ, an indestructible life? Do you think that would draw people towards our Savior? Do you think that would draw people towards the one that we trust in? How can you take that? When people call your names, how do you take that? Well, I don't listen to what they say about me. I listen to what he says about me. What if we were able to truly live that day by day? How much of a better husband would we be? How much better of a worker would be at our workplace? What a better citizen would be? What, what a better example would be if we could follow Christ's example? For it is witnessed of him. So here we go back to Psalm 110. David being the witness, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and use, uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, 
But on the other hand, a better hope. Do you remember that word hope? Joyful confidence in the Lord. Do you have hope in him? It's one of the key foundations of faith, which we're getting to later on. Assurance of things hoped for as well. He says, so he says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. The promises and the oath are still there. For th- those of the former became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, guarantor, one of those words, guarantor, right? Okay. Of a better covenant. That's a teaser for where we're going next week. That Jesus is the guarantee for us. For the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Currently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is how good our God is, that Jesus is at the right hand of God making intercession. He's a mediator for us. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And look at this description of Jesus in this verse. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners because he was sinless and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus, the one that we follow. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And we're going to continue to walk in this sacrifice and these covenants. But here's the question for us. Do we believe in Jesus? When we look at his indestructible life, do we live a life similar to that? Do we follow in the steps of Melchizedek being a type of pointing towards Jesus. Because remember, what happened with Melchizedek? What did he bring out to Abraham? Bread and wine. And what did Jesus do for his disciples? He brought out bread and wine. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do you see how that seed was planted? 2,000 years before Jesus came, he planted the seed of his body broken for us and of his blood, which is going to be shed for us, that came true through the cross and resurrection of our Lord. Woo! Bible's so good. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time, Lord, as we get to be in your word and see the beauty of your plan that, Lord, even before the priesthood was established, Lord, you set forth Melchizedek to be a type and example of your son. And he brought bread and he brought wine. And, Lord, these things point towards your sacrifice upon the cross. And that's what we want to celebrate today, just to remember how good you are. That, Lord, all of the things that are written in this book are true, and we can rest our life upon them. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. 
Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to truly be um, one with you. So Lord, help us as we celebrate this time to examine ourselves and to honor you in your name. Amen. Amen. So church, we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have placed your faith in him, we would love to invite you to come up and grab of the elements as we participate. I'm going to step down just to kind of help give some direction because it's a little challenging with all these wedges. But I'm going to ask that this group from here, you guys walk either through the rows or through the back and come down against the wall. That way you can come back up through the middle. Okay. So on this side, y'all are tough, so I'm going to deal with you on a second. But this side from here all the way to the back wall, y'all can make your way to the wall and come down and grab your elements and come through. Y'all can go ahead and start from the front to the back if you would. Okay, so you guys, this is the challenge here. You can either go left or right, whichever you wait, but you want to come down on the end and then come back so you can go back to your section, okay? So y'all come all the way over here, come down, and then come back up here, okay? So let's do it. We can do it. Looks great from up here. Y'all are doing awesome.
as we uh, ponder this this time, I, I want to share um, some thoughts about the Lord's Supper. Um, this is something that that uh, I read through a portion with our path group. I mentioned the other day how beautiful it is to see the the body of Christ working in harmony. And in our Bible study, um, we we partook at the the Lord's Supper. And there were some things that I shared with him that I want to share with you. When we take of the Lord's Supper, when we ask how the Lord's Supper should be meaningful to, to us as Christians living in this day and age, I want you to consider these three concepts, that of the past, the present, and the future. First, the Lord's Supper, it is a time of remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And this is not to be so much our dwelling on the agonies of the crucifixion as it is to be our remembering of the marvelous life and ministry of our Savior. Second, the supper, it is a time of refreshing and communion as we participate in the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection that we are actually being nourished and we're being empowered from the risen Christ through His Spirit. This is a beautiful thing that we get to participate in the Lord's Supper and we remember what He is doing in and through us. And then thirdly, the Supper is a time of recommitment and the anticipation of His coming. We are to examine ourselves. I think about the passage from 1 Corinthians and it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy matter, manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is an opportunity for you to examine yourselves and to ask yourselves, am I walking in the love of Jesus Christ towards one another? Am I displaying the very evidence that he lives in me to those around those that he puts in your path. So before we take of these, uh, this cracker and this juice, let's go to the Lord in prayer individually, and let's examine ourselves. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to examine us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have blessed us with the anointing of your spirit. We ask, God, that you would move within us, search our hearts, cleanse us, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to remember what you have done for us. Thank you that you have paid the price of our sins, past, present, and future. Lord, we never want to take this bread, this cracker, this Lord's Supper in a way that would dishonor you, God. Forgive us. Lord, thank you for giving us something to remember of the great sacrifice 
of what you've done for us, but also to anticipate the return of you coming, Jesus. Oh, we eagerly await you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So the Lord said, take of this my body that's been broken for you, eat of it in remembrance of me. And the Lord said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. Take this in remembrance of me. First Peter 2 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So church, as you go about this week, remember that you are walking not just in the marvelous light of his creation, but you're walking in the light that lives in you. So bless those with that truth. God bless you.